What does Jesus care about in the life of the local church? This is a question that we have been considering for the past uh, few weeks as we are working our way through the book of uh, Revelation. Does Jesus care that the church is active, that the church is growing, that the church has many ministries going on, that they have nice buildings, that they have thriving music ministry, that they have great Sunday school program? What does Jesus care about in the life of the local church? Today, as we are working our way through the seven messages uh, that are written to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, uh, we want to consider uh, this broader theme that we are, we are seeing in these seven messages that Jesus is all about the local church. And this morning, we want to look at how Jesus, or what Jesus speaks, how he addresses two of the seven churches, namely the church in Sardis and the church in Pergamum. I invite you to open God's word this morning to Revelation chapter 3. I'll be reading from verse 1 to verse 13. Revelation chapter 3, from verse 1 to 13. If you did not bring a Bible with you this morning, if you're visiting with us, uh, we are so glad that you are here. We'd love to get to know you and pray for you. Uh, but we encourage you to open up one of the Bibles provided in the chairs in front of you. You may find this on page number 1029. Here is God's word. For our hearts this morning. And to the church, and to the angel of the church in Sardis, write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember, then, what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you, because you have kept my word. About patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. 
never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Bow with me in prayer, asking God to bless the preaching of his word for our hearts. Father, we are privileged to hear the revelation of Jesus Christ, which he had revealed and sent to the local churches in the book of Revelation. Father, as we hear the message Christ sent to these churches, we pray that we might hear what Christ cares about, what he is concerned about, what he appreciates, what he wants to see corrected. Father, we pray that you would give us hearts to hear well. Speak to our hearts, we pray. In the name of Christ, for his glory and honor, we pray. Amen. For the past two Sundays, we have been looking at the seven messages written to the local churches uh, to which the book of Revelation was addressed. We have looked at four of the messages already. And what Jesus exposed in those churches and what he brought out, what he encouraged and what he corrected, Jesus in these messages shows us what he cares about in the local church. And in the four messages we have considered already, uh, just as a review, we see that Jesus cares about the love a church has, the love towards God, which is then manifested in a love for God's word and for one another. Uh, Second, Jesus cares about a church. He cares that a church is ready to suffer when suffering comes. Third, Jesus is concerned about the compromise that a church may be uh, flirting with. He calls two of the seven churches to resist compromise with idolatry, the idolatry of the pagan culture around them. These were the messages Jesus brought to the church in Ephesus, in Smyrna, and then in Pergamum and Thyatira. Today we are considering two more challenges that Jesus brings, two more characteristics that Jesus uh, shows and exposes to us about what he cares about when it comes to the local church. What does Jesus care about? The two things we will look at as we look at the church in Sardis and the church in Philadelphia is spiritual vigilance, spiritual vigilance, and second, a persevering obedience, a persevering obedience. Both of these are are characteristic of the church in Sardis first and then the church in Philadelphia. Let's look at each of these. Jesus cares. He cares deeply about a church's spiritual vigilance or staying awake spiritually, not drowsing, not dozing off, not being going to a sleepy mode. In chapter 3, Jesus addresses the church in Sardis, and there's very little affirmation that Jesus is giving this church. And even the small affirmation that, gi- that Christ gives to this church, it is valid for only a small minority in the church. Not even for the whole church. Not even for a majority of the church. The majority of the church lives such lives that Christ has nothing positive to say about most of them. Let's consider what is the problem that Christ identifies then what's the solution? What's at stake if they don't act on it? And the promise that Christ gives to the conquerors. Let's look at the church in Sardis. What's the problem that Jesus exposes in this church? Look at verse 1. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, 
but you are dead. Wow. This is a severe indictment. The shocking element in this church is not merely that they are considered dead, but that to people, they have a reputation of being alive. This should give us great caution and great chills. To other people, the church in Sardis was known to be a a lively church. This is not talking about a church that has only about six or seven dwindling older members that are about to die and the church is about to close down and, you know, everybody can see it. It's a church that's dying. This is not the church in Sardis. This is not the kind of death that Jesus is talking about. The church in Sardis had a reputation of being alive. And yet Jesus says, but you are dead should give us great chills to be sure that we don't evaluate a church's level of life based on what we can measure with our eyes. If we do that, we may be deeply off track in the sight of the Lord. Now, why does Jesus give this assessment about the church in Sardis? Look at verse 2. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. This means that the church in Sardis... um, They have done a number of good works, but apparently uh, their works were incomplete in the sight of God. Their actions, their deeds, their choices, their way of life may have looked very good to other people. Even good to themselves, but they were incomplete in the sight of God. This is not speaking about needing to have perfection in our works as if the works of a church or the works of believers must be uh, flawless. The the, the sense of incomplete refers not to perfection. Um, All Christians are sinners. Christians are sinners who continue to fight against their sin. We are in a lifelong battle with our own sinful desires. So what does it mean that Jesus finds their works incomplete? Well, if we look at the positive description that Jesus speaks to those who he commends, whom he affirms, we notice what's the opposite. What's the opposite? What does the minority have that the majority in this church is totally lacking? Look at verse 4. Jesus says, Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. What is Jesus talking about here? In the book of Revelation, those who have unclean clothes are not fit to be among those who enter in the new Jerusalem. In Revelation 21, 27, we read, But nothing unclean will ever enter into the new Jerusalem, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. In Revelation 7, 14, uh, we find out that the robes uh, of people who, who are made white, the rows who are white, are made white in the blood of the Lamb. Revelation seven fourteen. In 1 John 1, 7, John tells us, But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, 
He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Friends, the only means that Christians can be, can be considered clean before God is, first of all, if we bring our entire lives to be washed, to be cleansed by the blood of Jesus. But even after becoming Christians, we continue to sin. We continue to do the, the very thing that we, that we now hate, the very thing that we know God hates, the, the things that we know do not please the Lord. So what do we do? We are people who continuously are called to confess our sin, to repent of it, and to realign our lives, to, to walk worthy of the Lord. And our worthiness of the Lord is not based on merely what we do, it's based on what Christ has accomplished for us. But friends, our worthiness before the Lord is also walking in step or walking as a reflection of the purity that Christ has accomplished for us. The white clothing represents a purity. The purity on one side that Jesus accomplishes for us, but then it also represents the way of life that reflects the purity that Christ obtained for us. A way of living that pursues purity. And when we falter, when we, when we fail and we go, or go into sin or give into temptation, we are people who are quick to recognize we have sinned. We want to turn back to the Lord. We want to repent. We want to follow the Lord. We want to pursue the purity that Christ has accomplished for us. But the church in Thyatira, sadly, I'm sorry, the church in Sardis, sadly, um, for most of the members, they were disregarding the call to live out the word of life, the word of Christ in their life. They called themselves Christians, but their life did not show it. And that was the case not just for a minority in this church, but for a majority in the congregation. A majority of the Christians in the church in Sardis, majority of the members in the church in Sardis did not show clearly that they were Christians by the way they were living. And their disobedience to God is portrayed through three images. Being dead, being sleepy, or having stained garments. This church's disregard for the word of God made them on the verge of being on the spiritual deathbed, even though they had the reputation of being alive. Friends, this church in Sardis disregarded living out the word of God in its fullness. And that made them spiritually sleepy. Their disobedience to God's word is portrayed through these images. Dead, sleepy, and soiled garments. All three are true of the same people. Now what's the solution that Christ gives them? The solution he gives um, is found in five verbs. Five action verbs that Jesus describes and commands to this church. They, they're dead, but yet it's not over. Christ says, the first command, wake up. And this is hopeful. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. Wake up and strengthen. The first command Christ gives the church is to wake up from the spiritual sleepiness. The call to wake from spiritual sleepiness is so serious that Jesus repeats it again in verse 3. Jesus says, if you don't wake up, I will come to you like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. You have fallen asleep. A sleepy church. I'm not talking about the sleepiness that you and I can feel after a 
very rich Thanksgiving meal and you are just ready to, to doze off uh, and do nothing, chill out, take it easy, do nothing. You know, we know what that means physically. We know what it means when our bodies just go into that mode of, of not feeling, feeling ready to do anything and just, you just want to chill out. My friends, spiritually, that can also happen to us. When you just want to go on autopilot, they have fallen asleep, spiritually speaking. And Jesus says, wake up. The verb to wake up can be easily misunderstood and misapplied. This is not a, merely a one-time action verb. It's not merely a one-time event. In the Greek language, the command to, gra- to wake up is actually made up of two verbs that literally would say, become alert, keep your eyes open, remain fully alive. In other words, a call to wake up is a call to remain alert, to put away the drowsiness of our spiritual lives. Become aware of what's going on with you. Become alert of the dangers that are lurking in your life, spiritually speaking. Keep watch over your obedience to God. Strengthen what is weak. Jesus says not only wake up, but strengthen what is weak. This is so hopeful, dear friends. It means that even in the lives of those in which there's just a little bitty, tiny bitty of obedience, Jesus doesn't say, you go to the morgue. You're dead. You're done. No, Jesus says, wake up what's weak. There's hope. Wake up and strengthen. And then Jesus makes three more commands of what the solution involves. What involves to strengthen. What it involves to, to, to build up that which is weak. Three more verbs. Remember. Verse 3. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. These make the five verbs that Jesus includes as a solution to a sleepy church. Wake up from the spiritual sleepiness. Strengthen by doing what? By remembering what you have heard and received. In other words, the recipe for strengthening, the recipe for waking up and staying alert is to keep listening and remembering what you already have heard. We're not needing a new revelation, but we are needing a new attentiveness to what has already been communicated. A renewed desire to apply to our hearts and lives the Word of God. To act on it. Ask yourself, my dear friend, when was the last time that the Word of God challenged you to correct something in your life? When was the last time that the Word of God challenge you to correct something in your life. When you hear the Word of God, or when you read it to yourself, do you find yourself being challenged by God to do something different, to respond in a different way than you have in the past? Sleepy Christians don't read the Word beyond what they hear on Sunday morning. Sleepy Christians don't inconvenience themselves to get into the Word of God out of Sunday outside of Sunday. Sleepy Christians don't like to talk about the Word in their lives. And if you ask them what the Lord is teaching them lately about the Lord or about their ways, sleepy Christians couldn't answer it because they're no longer looking 
and staying alert to observe what God wants them to do differently. Sleepy Christians are concerned with how um, they might be concerned with what the Word is saying in general, but they're not concerned with how to apply the Word to their lives. Sleepy Christians live their spiritual lives on autopilot. They, be go- they could be going on through the motions of religion, but they're not thinking how this challenges me to act differently. But ask yourself, could any of this be said of you? Are there any signs in your life that you are drowsy, spiritually dozing off, being in a season of your life when you just want to take it easy, when you're just going through the motions? What's at stake if you don't wake up? What's at stake in this church, in the church of Sardis, if it doesn't wake up, if it doesn't strengthen what is weak, if it doesn't remember, if it doesn't keep the word, if it doesn't repent? Listen, what's at stake? Notice what Jesus threatens to do. In verse 3, if you will not wake up, I will come to you like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Now, Jesus has promised us in the book of Revelation that he is coming soon. And the people of God should be yearning and longing for the coming of Christ. But here, Jesus is talking about coming to the church in Sardis as a thief coming into the night. Now, this is not the only time Jesus speaks about coming as a thief. In the, book of, in the Gospel of Matthew 24, Jesus said, Therefore, stay awake. By the, by the way, it's the same verb. Stay awake. And Jesus is speaking that not physically, but spiritually. Stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at one part of the night the thief was coming, He would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Jesus uses a picture of of a thief coming in to break in the house to call people to stay awake. Mark 13, 37. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Luke 12, 37. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. In the book of Revelation, chapter 16, verse 15. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake. Friends, have you considered that the coming of Jesus will be as a thief coming and requires us that vigilance that keeps us spiritually alert? Jesus spoke several times about the importance of staying alert. Not to stay awake, not to stay alert would be very costly for us. And the coming of Jesus would not be, in that case, the coming of a welcomed guest, but more like the coming of an intruding thief. Only this time, Jesus would be that thief. Friends, it's bad enough to have a burglar break into your house and cause some small or medium-sized damage. But having Jesus in that role, that's a scary thought. Oh, friends, That would cause eternal damage. And yet, this is exactly what Jesus threatens to do to the church in Sardis if they choose to remain in their sleepy spiritual state, their drowsy, senseless, comatose state. You know what's interesting about the church in Sardis? They were living in Sardis. You say, what's what's interesting about that? The city of Sardis, geographically, was situated on a hill, on a high, high hill, 
that was very hard to conquer because of the high terrain on which the city was built. It was literally impossible for armies to conquer, to, to be in, a, in, a, in war against the city of Sardis if they were fighting back, if they were ready to fight back. Yeah, the city of Sardis was taken, conquered twice by the enemies. And in both situations, it was because the city had no watchmen at the entry gate. In other words, the entry was left unwatched. Sardis, in its history, had been a sleepy city. And because of that, they had been conquered twice, even though they had all the advantages of the terrain and the geography. The point is, lack of spiritual watchfulness can be very costly, dear friends, to any church. Seeking to be appreciated or thought of well by people is a dangerous substitute for pleasing God. Just because we are thought well by people or by our own selves does not mean that God views us in the same way. So ask yourself, are you taking your cues from what people are pleased with in you? Or are you taking your cues from what pleases the Lord? It's easy to fall for evaluating ourselves based on other people, on their human standard, on our human standard, and be pleased with the reputation we have among people. But it's the Lord's evaluation that counts. What's a promise that Jesus gives to this church that he calls to, to wake up spiritually? Look at verse 5. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. Christ promises that conquerors will receive white garments from him at the end of the age. But even now, in our earthly journey, Christ desires his followers to live in the purity that Christ accomplishes for us. Friends, this means that our salvation is secure, but don't assume that somehow the security of our salvation can lead you and I to become spiritually drowsy, inattentive, careless, or sleepy. Such a state leads to death. So wake up. Stay alert. Cultivate spiritual alertness in you. May I suggest something to the members of our congregation? If you are not meeting with another brother or sister, the same gender than you, to, to pray with you, to pray for you, to be spiritually be accountable to someone else, I want to encourage you to consider beginning an accountability relationship. Give an account to someone. Help yourself by inviting others to be engaged in your life, to watch over you, to, to call the shots when you are when you're tempted to close the eyes and when your eyes and head and, and posture, spiritually speaking, gives the signs of, of, of dozing off. If you are living a life as a Christian that constantly keeps yourself isolated from others, it's hard for others to, to watch over you and, and encourage you against sleepiness. So encourage yourself. Encourage you and encourage our congregation to, to reach out to one another. Consider developing accountability relationships, praying for one another, asking each other hard questions. Don't be satisfied merely to coming to Sunday school, listening to a great Sunday school lesson, even getting Bible insights. If you're not applying the word to your heart, if the word is not in you and you are vigilant over how you are striving to please the Lord, friends, you are in danger of dozing off spiritually. 
if the church in Sardis was corrected for its sleepiness, for its spiritual or lack of spiritual vigilance, the church in Philadelphia has exactly the opposite situation. The church in Philadelphia had everything that the church in Sardis was lacking. And friends, this gives us hope. It gives us hope that the churches can live a life that please the Lord. What's about this church in Philadelphia? One thing about them is they have no correction from Jesus. Only positive affirmations. There's nothing Jesus finds needing to correct in the church in Philadelphia. I love how my advisor once said, um, the church in Philadelphia, or the, the Philadelphia letter, is the letter that any church would wish to receive from the Lord. What is it about this church? What are they doing right? What are they getting right? That it leads the Lord who knows everything, all things about every church. It leads the Lord to say only words of encouragement. What are they doing? Well, they are persevering in their obedience. They're persevering in their obedience. Look at verse 8. I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have little power, or I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. What was going on in the church? They had little power, little influence, little resources. If you went and visited a church in, in Philadelphia it, and looked at them simply through the human eyes, with human standards, most likely you would not be impressed. No impressive services, no impressive potential, no strategic location. But despite the lack of power and human potential, they were obedient to Christ. They were obedient to Christ's word. They kept the word that Jesus revealed to them, and they have not denied the name of Jesus. What does it mean to keep the word of Christ? It means to obey all that Jesus had taught us, all that God has revealed to us. Do you remember the Great Commission? As a Baptist church, we do know the Great Commission well, right? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, said Jesus. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. In other words, to, to obey is to observe all that Jesus has taught us. The Great Commission does not stop with merely helping people become saved. The Great Commission is completed when we teach people to obey all that Jesus commanded us. The church in Philadelphia took this Great Commission to heart and completed it. They were living out the Word of Christ. They were teaching one another to obey the Word of Christ. A key characteristic of a Christian is not that they are sinless or perfect, but that they are known for their obedience to God's Word. An obedience that flows from knowing that we are loved by Jesus Christ. Yes, we will sin. Yes, we will falter. But we don't stay there. We come back to the desire to please the Lord with a life of obedience. Does your knowledge of God's love for you lead you to obedience of God? 
Or does it leave you keep loving your idols? When we understand God's love for us in Jesus, it affects our obedience to God. We begin loving God's word. We begin loving obedience to God. If the church in Philadelphia was not known for its power or its resources or its strategic location or its influence in society, it was known for something much more eternally lasting. It was known for its obedience to the word of Christ. And that made all the difference for this church. Friends, this means several things for us. First of all, you don't need much power to keep the word of Christ. You don't need the power that this world would deem as power. You don't need the resources that this world would would deem as important in order to keep the word of Christ. The second thing this teaches us is that obedience to Jesus does not always make a church powerful or influential in society. Think about it for a second. The one church that was very obedient to Jesus, so obedient that Jesus had nothing to falter them for, somehow did not make it to be known as the most influential institutions on the planet. Think about it for a moment. What this world values as influence, as power, as strategy, as potential, this church completely lacked. But even, it, even though it lacked in those things, it did, that did not keep it away from being powerful in another more significant way because of its obedience to the Word of God. Oh, friends, I wonder, I wonder if, we, if that would be sufficient with us. Sometimes in, even Christians in churches may desire to have a, a greater, if you will, influence in society. And, and, and oftentimes that can be motivated well, but sometimes it can be motivated in a very human standard kind of way that just leads us to compromise with the Word of God for the sake of getting the attention and the power and the influence of this world. And Jesus says, I don't care about that. I would rather have you be weak in the eyes of this world, but be powerful in obeying my word. In verse 10, Christ speaks again about the obedience of the church. He says, because you have kept my word about, obe- about patient endurance. What is the word that they kept? It's a word of Jesus about patient endurance. This means, or this can also be translated as, because you have kept my word to persevere. In other words, what Jesus desires from all his followers is to persevere in their obedience, to endure to the end no matter what the cost is. The call to persevere is one of the key messages in the book of Revelation. Persevering following Christ involves ongoing obedience to God and his word. And that's why what Jesus appreciates, what Jesus commends to this church is a persevering obedience. Friend, do you believe that obedience to Christ is more important than power or influence? If you had to choose between the two, and I'm not saying that we always have to choose between the two, but sometimes we do. And if you had to choose between the two, between power and obedience to Christ's word, which one would you choose for your life? Which one would satisfy you the most? Influence or obedience to Christ? Which one would you like people to speak about you at your funeral? 
about all the things that you did in life, about all the powerful things you were able to do, about all the influence you were able to have, or would you rather be known for your obedience to Christ? To a church that excels in obedience and faithfulness to Christ, the letter Christ sends them is full of promises. What promises does Jesus give to this church? Well, there's promises on both sides of this letter, both in the beginning and the end. A first promise that Jesus gives is in verse 8, a door that no one can close. Look at verse 8. I know your works. Behold, behold, I set a door, an open door, which no one is able to shut. Some Bible interpreters think that this imagery of an open door that Christ sets before this church uh, refers to some future evangelistic opportunity or to some immediate success that they will encounter. Most likely, however, this imagery of an open door, which no one is able to shut, refers to the open door of the New Jerusalem that we find out in, Je- in Revelation 21:25. The gates of the New Jerusalem will never be shut. This means that Jesus pros- promises this obedient church entrance into the New Jerusalem. In other words, it's not how much power a church has on this side of heaven. What matters most is to have access to the heavenly Jerusalem. And being assured of that access is one of the most important news a church can hear. Christ shows how how and what pleases Him in the life of a church. And when when He sees a church that, that is devoted to pleasing the Lord, He says, look, I am giving you an open door and no one can shut it. The door the access to the new Jerusalem. A second promise that Jesus gives is in verse 9. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but, are, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Amazing what these opponents of God's people uh, are going to learn about the people of the church in Philadelphia. They will know that God loved They will know that Christ loved them. But notice what else is going on with these people. They will come down and and bow down and and bow at their feet. This, friends, is a promise that was given first in the book of Isaiah, chapter 60. God said the following to his people in the book of Isaiah. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Now, the book of Isaiah, in the book of Isaiah, this promise suggested that the Gentiles who would trouble the Israelites would come bowing down to God's people. But in the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 9, Jesus applies these words and makes it clear that those coming to bow down are the Israelites who are opposing Jesus and who are persecuting the church, the followers of Jesus, they will be coming down. They are now in the same seat as the opponents of God's people. They will come down humbled at the end of the age. So the church in Philadelphia, to them Jesus gives us a second promise that the Jews who cause him troubles will actually have the same fate as the oppressors of God's people in the Old Testament. Well, friends, it's no longer about nationalistic uh, ethnicity. Everything is now based on how we relate to Jesus. 
and to his followers. If any Christ follower had any doubts about whether or not they should continue to follow Jesus, or if they should denounce Jesus for the sake of Judaism in the church in Philadelphia, this promise makes it very clear. Those who oppose Christ and his people will be brought low at the end of the age. The church in Philadelphia has given this promise that Christ loves them and everyone will know that they have been loved by Christ. A third promise that Jesus gives them is in verse 10. Because you kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. This is Christ's promise of protection. This protection needs to be explained. Protection from what? It's not protection from the trials or the persecution that the dragon instigates against God's people. The book of Revelation does not promise protection from suffering, the suffering that is triggered by the devil. The book of Revelation is promising protection from the hour of trial that is coming against the whole world. This refers to the plagues of the very end of the end times, which are aimed to test the people of the earth. In Revelation 7 and in Revelation 9, we see twice that prior to certain plagues of Revelation, not all the plagues of Revelation, but prior to certain plagues of Revelation, God asks his angels to mark off his people so that his people would not be affected by the plagues that God will bring against the dwellers of the earth. This pattern was seen also in the Exodus story when God made a distinction between his people and the Egyptians. In a similar way, God promises the church in Philadelphia that because they have kept the word of Christ, Christ will keep them from the hour of trial. Now friends, let me make something clear. Our motivation for obeying Christ is not an exchange of favors. In the sense of, Jesus, I keep your word, you keep me. Let's do this deal. That's not what Jesus wants from us. No, in the book of Revelation, rather, we want to obey Christ because he loved us. We obey Jesus out of our love for the Lord. But as a reward, the Lord promises to keep us from the hour of trial, and this is an act of grace. While this reward of being kept from the hour of trial should never be the basis of our obedience to Christ, it can serve as a further encouragement to help us persevere, even if the cost is high now. To a church that has done so well, to a church that has done so exemplary, what is Christ asking him to do? Here's what he's asking him to do. Verse 11, I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The command to hold fast can be translated in a number of ways. But here the emphasis is on being committed to adhere strongly, to remain closely united. The emphasis is not merely stay united, but stay firmly united, not merely hanging on loosely. Or the opposite is hold on strongly, firmly. So ask yourself, Are you holding on to Christ firmly or in a loose way? 
do you keep your Christian walk? And do you keep Christ more like a, at a distance? He's there. He's not off the radar in your life. But he's more on the, on the fringes. He's more on the, on the edges of your life. Christ is calling a church that was already uh, on, has a track record of obedience to his word. Christ calls them to hold fast. Hold a firm grip on what they have already heard. The church that was praised for its obedience does not hear that they can now hit the cruise button and just go on autopilot and just keep doing what they're doing. Christ is actually saying, hold on firmly. Don't get loose. Don't loosen up. Hold on strongly. Friend, it's amazing that Christ is not telling this church, keep evangelizing. Now, don't get me wrong. Evangelism is very important. Evangelism is one of the commands that Christ gives us. But Jesus is not telling this church simply to be focused on getting more people inside the church or just doing more outreach. It's important to do that. But that's not the most and all that Jesus has asked the church to do. Friends, Jesus is telling this obedient church to stay focused on obeying Christ. Our obedience to Christ is the paramount proof of whether or not our hearts have been truly changed. Our obedience to Christ encompasses all the commands that Christ has given us. So after Christ gives this command to the church in in Philadelphia to keep on uh, holding fast, two more promises. The promise in verse 12 and then verse 13. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. Oh, friends, these are promises that any Jewish person would have desired to hear. Any Jewish person would have desired to hear that he is made not only to dwell in the, in the temple of the Lord, but to be made a pillar in that temple. That's a picture of permanency. That's a picture of stability. That's a picture of you're, you're planted in the dwelling of God. And then the second promise, that a name will be written on him. Not only one name, three names. The name of God, the name of the new city, the name of Jesus Christ. Three times, three names are given to, to those who conquer. In other words, our identity is so solidified. Our ownership, who, to whom we belong, whose we are, is so solidified to these conquerors. Oh, friends, it's amazing that several times throughout the book of Revelation, the people of God are described as having God's name written on them. Let me just read to you two of the instances. Revelation 14.1, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Revelation 22.4, They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. To have written on us these three names is like having our identity and our ownership stamped on us. We belong to God. Friends, to be a a Christian is to belong to God. To have our identity and our ownership all transferred from self, 
from this world to God and to the new city that He is preparing for us. This is not to limit us. This is not to uh, limit our freedom. This is not to take away our freedom. Only the devil will make you believe that belonging to God is to give up your freedom. The book of Revelation tells us that only those who experience true and eternal freedom belong to God. And those are those who have God's name written on them. Friend, ask yourself, is God's name written on you? Are you among those whom God will stamp as saying, this one is mine, this one is mine, this one is mine? Friends, consider today whose you are. What is the name that will be written on you? Today, the message we have looked at, the two churches that we have considered, challenge us to recognize what Jesus cares about most in the church. He cares about spiritual vigilance. And if any of us are in the danger of dozing off, sleeping off, like I see some of you this morning, physically, I hope that's not the case with you spiritually. I know it was a long weekend. It was a Thanksgiving weekend. I forgive you. If you are falling asleep physically, I'm not going to be offended. But if you are falling asleep spiritually, Oh, friend, you are the one who's going to be losing big time. Wake up spiritually and keep persevering. Delight in what Jesus delights. He delights in a people who, are, who have their eyes on the ball, following Jesus, living a life that pleases him. May we receive the same kind of commendation, the same kind of affirmation that the church in Philadelphia received. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you that even in times when we might be spiritually tired, dozing off and sleepy, Lord, you don't send us directly to the morgue. You have a message that seeks to awaken us. You have a message that seeks to, to, to wake us up from our sleepiness. And Lord, we pray that that would be the case for any of us who might be in that stage, spiritually speaking. Lord, we pray that we might be a congregation that grows in loving your word and obeying your word, that we would seek to live a life that pleases you out of our knowledge that you have loved us. And by our obedience to your ways, may the world know that you have loved us. We pray all this for the sake of Christ, for his glory and honor.